Hello and welcome to Bear Academy. I'm Bear. This week, I met a UX entrepreneur, an agency founder in New Zealand in Auckland. So this guy, Brendan Jarvis, he founded the best UX research lab here in the country.、Uh, we talked a lot of.、Um, Things around UX, around design, around how Kiwi can better cope with the new norm and、um, get ready for the digital challenge in, ahead of us. And also on the down to the ground level, how we as individuals can、um, can get ready for、uh, for the new age and how we can. Uh, deliver how we can develop our ourselves to be a better designer. Yeah, a lot of heaps of great insights from this episode. Let's jump into it. Could you introduce yourself a little bit at first? It's just a yeah, a basic introduction for yourself. Yeah, sure. So my name is Brendan Jarvis, and I'm the managing founder of the Space in Between. And the space in between is a specialist UX research practice, and also the home to New Zealand's first and only world-class UX lab. Right, that's a very <laughs> clear and yeah understandable <laughs> description. And、uh, I I just want to jump directly to the things I found the most interesting thing about you. What I found is that you started your own business at your at ten. Nineteen ninety-five, right? That's right. Yeah, just going back a while. Yeah. yeah. How about start with this story? Yeah, sure. So, at that time, I、um, was fortunate enough to grow up next to my grandparents, and、right. they were very, very generous people.、Yeah. And they had purchased a PC, the first PC that I think anyone in our extended family had seen at that time. Because at that time they were, you know, four or five thousand dollars just for a very basic computer,、mm. and I、uh, ended up spending more and more time over there. I was so curious about this、uh, this thing, the computer, and it really captivated me. And about the same time as they bought the computer, they also、um, got an internet connection. Wow! And I started、um, <laughs> learning、um, through various websites how to code HTML. At that time, yeah,、wow. yeah, at the, yeah, I know. I'm a, Normally, just, it, people just start to learn like basic or, or yeah, all other like、uh, language、uh, about coding, but it jumped directly to to HTML. Yeah, I can't remember how exactly I found my way to it, but like I said, I was very curious, and there's a reason why I'm so pasty white. I've spent so much time in <laughs> front of screens in my life; it's、yeah. quite scary.、Yeah. So I ended up teaching myself、um, the basics of it, and I thought. What would be really great is if I could get some clients, and what I ended up doing is going through the yellow pages at that time, which was a telephone directory、right. that we had of、yeah. uh, businesses in New Zealand, and I wrote them a letter by hand, and I faxed, <laughs> I faxed these letters, these sales letters, pitching myself as a、uh, website design. Service to these businesses, and I think it probably only lasted a couple of weeks. I probably sent twenty or thirty of these, and then I remember my grandfather being very grumpy one day, and I asked him what was going on, and he received the telephone bill because、oh, wow. back back then、uh, sending faxes what wasn't free, and、uh, that was the end of that business. So there were no clients, <laughs> but there was a, a determination. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that sounds like a drop one <laughs> of, of your business. But, Failed business. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's uh, that. A lot of great points that I can found from this story. The first is that um, it's quite unique for your family to, can invest in PC and internet at that time. It feels like people not、um, probably invest something. A TV or other things or larger cars, so things like that. I think that's a really different way, so it can get a, like a better position for you and really open the eyes. And especially yeah. like yeah. PC and internet is really expensive. Was really expensive at that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my like I mentioned, my grandparents were very generous people, and they had a large family and.、Right. They were blue collar background, so I was the first person in my family, my extended family. I'm talking five children that my grandparents had, my aunties and uncles, and all of their children. Some of which have also gone on to university, but I was the first、um, person to receive a university degree in my extended family.、Mm. And I suppose my, why I'm saying that is、uh, a lot of that had to do with the willingness、um, and generosity of my grandparents to invest in things that they felt would help. Um, us to better further ourselves and better educate ourselves. They were spectacular people. Yeah, and also the other thing I feel quite impressive is that you jump not only on HTML. That's another story, but you jump directly to business. So a lot of people,、uh, from my understanding, probably at the beginning of learning something, we just how I can do better or. Or what is the skills and knowledges I need to learn? But it's quite different that for you, you jump directly into business, even when you are only ten at that time. Yeah, yeah、uh, I suppose it has to do with. You know, I want to. I suppose make this clear. I didn't go without anything. I had,、yeah. you know, I had a like I mentioned, I had a very loving、um, extended family. But I grew up、um, as a. Only child,、um, and my mum was a solo mum, and I certainly saw、um, the more difficult side of life when you don't have、um, a lot of money.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose that was an early influence in、um, how I felt about myself and what I wanted to achieve with my life from very early age.、Mm. And、um, I suppose the business actually had its roots a couple of years earlier. I remember going to primary school. I was eight. I, I think it was、um, standard two. They called it back in the day. And my teacher had asked me one morning before class started. You know, what did I want to be when I grew up? You know, the sort of quintessential question that you ask a child. Yeah. And、um, I actually didn't say what. I said who. I said I want to be Bill Gates.、Uh-huh. And <laughs> I suppose I'd I'd been captivated by. You know the com- the computer world, and of course at that time、um, Bill Gates was、um, and still is, I suppose, one of the preeminent figures in that revolution. Right. And、yeah. it was a very exciting time for a you know a young a young person. Yeah. Wow. Well, how about the、uh, what, what's the next business attempt after that? So the next business attempt was. I was very fortunate. At around about the age of fifteen, I had a close family friend who、um, had always, I suppose, seen that I was maybe a little bit different than 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 some other people. <laughs> you know, starting businesses at ten, and I was a very curious child, and、yeah. really loved technology. And、um, he and some other pharmacists had started the、um, wanted to start the, one of the first online pharmacies in the country. 
that was called Medicine Express. And he had realized that I'd developed some capability in, in the area of programming. I'd been building websites for my Quake clan, which was a computer game back in the day. And yeah. I'd been doing you know, hobbyist type, type work. And he, as I said, they were launching this online pharmacy. And he gave me a great opportunity to basically design and build and market this pharmacy for yeah. them. And rather than pay me a wage and employ me, what they said to me is that they would pay me per order that came in mm. a certain amount of money. And mm. so that was, I suppose, a very early, um, at, but this time profitable start to running a business with the right incentives. And yeah. It was, was just me still mm. at that stage, but I was being paid based on the performance I could deliver as yeah. opposed to the time that I was investing. So that was the next business and mm. that um, actually ended up being a place that I worked and managed um, until I finished university and oh. they sold that, that business. Oh. Yeah. Sounds like a quite successful one. Like yeah. Last for a long time. Yeah, well, it certainly long helped. Long. I didn't have to work at the supermarket um, anymore and, um, and I was able to control my time more because I was able to leverage my expertise at that early age into something that was hmm. um, you know, relatively profitable for that, for that stage of life. And it, it gave me a great start and, a, I suppose, a good story to tell when I, when I finished university and was in the job market. Right. But I don't like to tell people that I was effectively an online drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of ra raises a few eyebrows, but I can, I can say for certain that they were yeah. all just above board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was all above board. There were no, no, no illegal drugs. It was all legitimate <laughs> pharmacy. Um, but yes, it was an export-focused business and it was a lot of fun. Oh, right, because my first job at New Zealand, uh, in New Zealand was working at um, a health supplement company right. online. So it's kind of like the same. People, uh, some of my friends ask, uh, "Who are you working on?" And I say, "Drug dealer." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So drugs on my table every day. <laughs> things, yeah. things like that. It's, yeah, it's quite interesting, and it's really impressive that at the beginning of your. Uh, like uh, study uh, and uh, and it's quite different uh, from other people's uh, career plan or strategy because uh, probably other I, I don't know maybe for uh, a, a, a general Kiwi uh, at the beginning uh, working uh, supermarket or some some place um, uh, and then go to uh, go to university and find a job maybe mm. a Permanent role or some uh, work for some companies, and started uh, and after a few years invest a house, or, and then move on to, mm -hmm. to, to his or her own business, or mm -hmm. probably just stay in that comp in, in that industry mm -hmm. and jump to different companies, and that's all. Mm -hmm. So, how about you? What's the what's the roadmap and what's the career path for, for that? And finally, yeah. got you here. Yes, I mean, it hasn't all, all been a success story. Um, after finishing university, I decided I was going to start a proper business this time. Mm -hmm. And I went into business with someone who was a bit more experienced and had an established business. And we, we wanted to effectively do web design. That was mm -hmm. the simple uh, way of describing it. And Have you considered to join a company at the beginning or just not an option for you? At the yeah, I remember 
in the last year or end of the second year of university that you know people around you start thinking about which companies they're going to go and work for when they finish their undergraduate and there's the graduate programs that all the consultancies and other businesses that come into the business school because I I studied e-commerce and and business in Victoria Mm -hmm. Um, so there was there was that path but I never wanted to go down that path I always wanted to have control over how I spent my time yeah. and I wanted to live I suppose with more risk than maybe other people were willing to live with mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I saw it that way at the time I think I was just rather excited by the possibilities mm-hmm. um, that were presented by running your own company yeah. but in the end I suppose I went to this um, went, went um, to start this business with this other guy and I learned a couple of hard lessons one lesson I learned was be very careful with who you go into business with mm-hmm. Because yeah. what um, yeah. appears at face value is not always um, is not always the case, yeah. and the other lesson that I learned is that I would have probably made more money if I was on the benefit for the one year mm. that that I was in that business. It was not successful. Mm. Uh, it was it was very poor in terms of its financial performance, and it was ultimately um, after 12 months I decided because of the relationship uh, that I'd had with this other person mm. deteriorating and the poor financial performance of the endeavor mm. that I would uh, I suppose take a step into the real world and go and get a real job mm. which I which I did and mm. I went to work for a design agency in Wellington right I think it sounds like a really common experience for uh, for business starters uh, to choose the right people to work with I have the similar experience. Yeah. When I started my, uh, my my company in China. Uh, the first uh, partner uh, is a, is a very was a very close friend, and at that time I didn't know too much about that and just think, uh, yeah, we play together very good. So now we can work together, but things doesn't go that way. And, yeah. yeah, and then. Uh, even the friendship doesn't go that way mm-hmm. after that, so it's quite a shame. Um, yes, I think it is. That, yeah, I think that's uh, a lot of people mentioned that, but I think probably even when you are experiencing, like uh, have the actual experience, you will finally understand. Yeah, that's the kind of like a hard lesson to, to learn, but mm-hmm. yeah. It, mm, There's only one way to learn that. Just, as well you, you know just do it. you just do it and yeah. it is unfortunate because often those friendships don't survive yeah yeah and it's the price that you pay my observation of these situations has been that even when it's not a lot of money when there's money involved it really changes the dynamic between two people yeah and or not doesn't always i suppose it increases the risk that that dynamic yeah. changes negatively between two people yeah. and I don't think there's any I don't, I'm not I'm not sure I'm experienced enough to say that there are any strategies to try and avoid that but what I do know is a good idea because it's happened um, more than once actually in the space in between I had a, a business partner who became a good friend and um, then exited the company after I think three years hmm. and one thing that we did that made it easier to have that conversation although it was still difficult was that we had a shareholders agreement mm. that was quite clear mm. about how things would happen if someone wanted to leave the company 
yeah. what the process would be in terms of valuation and mm. how it would run. Um, but those human relationships, even though you might be well-planned, sometimes don't survive that process, yeah. which is yeah. a shame. But I think that you mentioned that um, it's at first a business partner and then become a very good friend. That's the, that's the better sequence. <laughs> be a friend first, then business partner, and then, yeah stranger at the last so, well you yeah. stand you stand to lose more i suppose if it's a friend first yeah you know because you know what right. you had before yeah. yeah and yeah and you mentioned that then you went to a design agency because i read your articles your interviews and uh you said that some some people probably your uh previous employee employer or someone mm-hmm. said you you don't fit this uh, advertisement industry. Is that something that you can share? Like, uh, what's, yeah. what's that experience? So uh, after working for the design agency in Wellington yeah. for a couple of years, I got the opportunity to come up to Auckland and start their office up here. Mm. And that was all great. That was a fantastic opportunity. I think I was 21 or two at the time. Wow. Managed to convince them to, to give me the title general manager, which wow. I was, thought was very impressive. Yeah. Uh, gave myself a bit of a self-high five for that one. But it was a great it was a great time, great opportunity. I had a lovely team up here. And then the great um, recession hit in 2008 uh, and it became very 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 difficult so I ended up leaving um, the design agency and getting this opportunity in in another business Mm. and I was only there for three months so you might be able to sort of read between the lines and see how well that went and I remember it was a mistake (laughs) well yeah I think it was yeah maybe a mistake on 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 both both parties ends but I, I remember being in the boardroom and it was one of those meetings I don't know if any anyone else can relate to this but sometimes you have these meetings and there's only ever going to be one way that they're going to play out yeah <laughs> and it wasn't a good meeting as far as far as I was concerned from my perspective yeah. and I got set I got set down basically and I would politely I would describe it as a character assassination uh, I got a blow by blow of basically all of my shortcomings which culminated with a uh, statement uh, that was uh, I don't think that you're in the right industry. Oh no. Yeah, oh no. Yeah, it was a very hard meeting. Actually I remember I remember leaving that day and I don't mind saying this that I actually I think I cried in my car. I'd never had anyone say anything so cutting to the bone about yeah. my abilities. And not because I lived in some sort of cotton wool um, environment where I was told my whole life how wonderful I was. I was quite aware that I had some shortcomings, but I've never really had anyone try and put the knife in quite so deep and no one has ever done that to me since but it wasn't something that I look at and I think oh what a it was a horrible thing to do to somebody but it wasn't a bad thing to have happened to me because I basically used that in in a large part um, to give myself the motivation to I suppose prove that that wasn't the case yeah not to that person um in particular but just I knew he was wrong mm-hmm. and yeah. um, and it was now time to to really make that happen yeah so okay. then I started the space in between wow yes I think sometimes we just need kind of the external motivation and sometimes the challenge will make us stronger mm-hmm. it depends on different people but in general I do find that 
people should be motivated by something, and this type of the uh, statement, you know, that's that's kind of the the uh, the one of the things that uh, we we really want to fight back and to show what uh, we are able to do and uh, to to prove them wrong. And yeah, and without I think at this stage probably without this. This meeting, there will be no space in between. That's right, and that's why I look yeah. at that, and I and I think you know, you could look at that, and I could have been crushed by it, and it could have ruined my confidence. Right. Um, but if someone ever says something like that to you, I think it's really important that you live in how much that hurts for the moment, but mm-hmm. that you get some perspective on that, and you realise that just because somebody else is saying that about you does not make it true you know you are the author of your own story and you get to decide what's written on the next page right and don't let anybody Mm. hold the pen for you it's really important that you write write the book yourself yeah so yeah i think it ultimately was a very positive thing Mm. it reaffirmed a few self-beliefs that i held one thing i find probably quite interesting i don't know if it's only me or from other people because um, you mentioned that this one, uh, this harsh meeting, uh, happened in uh, advertisement industry. Because um, I also heard some other stories related or similar experience, like other designers find uh, working um, advertisement, uh, especially agent agency uh, companies, uh, quite challenging because they don't know, they don't have the. Uh, a lot of touch points with clients or with with the customers or users, mm-hmm. but only probably one person, like the art director or the creative director, will make the decision if it's okay, yes or no. Mm. So, do you have any like any uh, related insights or stories around this? Because uh, what I've used to work at in China is kind of like similar. But I don't know from here, like New Zealand, what, what like from the, especially like the traditional um, uh, creative industry, how it, how it looks and how it works. Yeah. Yeah. From agencies' perspective. So what what you have just talked about reminds me of a recent conversation I had with a gentleman called um, Dr. Dra- David Travis, mm-hmm. and David is a really highly esteemed usability and user researcher in in the UK Mm -hmm. and he what he said to me was that good design doesn't live inside designers and I thought oh that's really interesting because that doesn't sound like a very good thing to say in design circles you know most designers probably think what do you mean good design doesn't live inside me I'm the designer and what I'm getting at is there's this attitude, I suppose, in traditional creative industries and even in design in general and digital design and creative people in general, that they are the source of the creativity. Mm. But I think when it comes to the design of experiences or products or services that other humans engage with, which let's face it is most of the work that we now do, particularly in the digital industry, that the good the good design or the great design is actually found in the space that the user is interacting with whatever you've created. Mm. 
and it's in that space that you can get the insights mm. that you can then go back and apply and refine your design with that will actually make it great and without that input if you're just operating in a vacuum mm. you're caught up in your own ego and you're not willing to be brave and to put that in front of someone else that it's designed for mm-hmm. to use it it's very difficult or hard to see that you could ever be wildly successful in your craft mm. yeah that's a great point because it's from my understanding it feels like a designer's value or the design's value is uh, evaluated by the customer's experience and uh, and it's really some kind of um, you know we don't have a very clear measure measurement for uh, for for taking the uh, the data accurate to, to measure how, how it performs, how it works. And yeah, that, that's really an interesting point. But I think at this stage, the, the modern design um, trends or uh, the, how we do it now, it's much better than it used to be. Because mm. before that, it's like a black box. Everyone's doing their own work and then uh, do a presentation and show, here's the thing. Yeah. And people don't ah I like it or it's uh, I don't like it and then go back and work for for another few weeks. But now like we working uh, design sprint, agile and things mm. like that. So we try to validate things in the day to day to day yeah. basis. So this is some th- some things that we're trying as a designer or in design industry is trying to trying to uh, convince that this is the right way to do that or this is a proper proper way to do that and I think a lot of designers now not afraid of show things in the process uh, and before that probably people still think yeah I'm not ready for showing this mm. and not ready to discuss uh, the things in process because still not finished mm. but yeah now I think if you can have the right understanding of the design thinking methodology and all the things and it's not a not a problem you, mm-hmm. it, it's all right you, you say no mm-hmm. and you, you let let people know um, it's not the final version mm-hmm. and there will be a iteration uh yeah continuous improving but as long as the other guy understand that understand value so yeah i think that's something we're trying to improve or still uh, on the way mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to. Yeah, that that's what I'm interesting about. Like, uh, what it used to be. Yeah, well, what it used to be was more of a battle of opinions, and there is still uh, there is still an element of that that goes on, and I think it's encouraging that there is more of an openness though to settling those opinions by saying, okay, great, we might have a difference of opinion here. But let's both be adults about this. Let's de-risk the situation and determine what might be the right way forward, which may be neither of the opinions that we hold, quite frankly. It could be a third opinion or a third perspective that we haven't heard, and that's to actually put it to the test with the customer. And that, to me, is is a real sign of, and I don't really like this term maturity, but for lack of a better word, that it's a real sign of a maturity of an organization 
when they're willing to hold those opinions loosely and they're willing to settle the disputes, if you like, by actually testing that with real mm. users. Yeah, that's actually a quite good point to relate it to what I just saw, like the uh, like the user testing room and mm -hmm. the lab you, you just showed me. For for the people who's listening, uh, probably can't see it, but uh, I just uh, or, uh, saw the uh, very the, the, the world class uh, interviewing room and it's here at a, a space in between and I think it's a great way um, that can show people uh, rather than the opinions show some uh, data and show some uh, some uh, statics about about the performance so it's not just the opinions war mm -hmm. and it's quite common for for uh, for a lot of companies that you, if you show a design to uh, to different stakeholders or uh, like different team members and normally senior design uh, senior stakeholders opinion mm. probably gonna win and even there are bias or there are some um, uh, like it's not on the same perspective with the customer uh, and they always win mm. but now I, I think uh, if we as a designer can have the better way to defend our design that will be great so it's just let me uh, reminded me that what I just saw about mm. your, your lab so mm. which is quite impressive could, mm. could you tell us a little bit more about this I know it's jumped a little bit mm. fast but yeah, <laughs> really sure. to know that. yeah so the the lab is it's not a new idea yeah um, but I feel it is a very important expression of a commitment to being user-centered and what it is, is it's a place where we can bring a design team and anybody else in the organization that has an interest in the design, so whether it's a new feature mm -hmm. or a new product or whether we're just trying to assess a competitor and learn a bit more about their user experience, where we can bring them into a space and in that same space can be some real live users, not abstractions, not analytics data, not personas that may or may not be relevant but actual people that reflect the user that you're trying to design for trying to create products and services for and while there is an analytical aspect of what we can measure when we um, have the user in this setting what we're actually trying to do is learn through observation of their behavior how they are experiencing the product the feature that we are trying to learn more about. And generally what we do is we give the, the user a series of scenarios or tasks that reflect some form of real world behavior that they would otherwise be performing. Um, and we ask them to complete those tasks. Mm. And we look and we listen and we learn and we find where the problems are and we keep our mind open as to what the opportunities might be to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chris, I found that just a really great way that can col uh, collect um, insights from those observations and, uh, and some companies, um, organizations, they probably have their own design team and mm. already do the same thing. And what could be, think, what, what do you think could be the advantage from uh, space in between, like to do that and to provide those kind of the research. Mm. Uh, what's the difference between uh, 
the in-house design team and uh, another agency to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when it comes to in-house design teams, I have always seen what I'm trying to achieve here as being very much their ally. Right. So this is yeah. a, a place and a, I suppose a, an experience and a service that actually helps that internal design team to do a couple of things. Mm. It helps them to uh, more easily scale and reliably repeat their efforts to understand their users mm. because of the nature of this purpose-built facility yeah. and what it enables. Um, sometimes you find in a design team internally they might just be overwhelmed and they need some extra capacity. Yeah. Um, other times you might find that there's very talented people in there but the organization hasn't yet seen um, the light when it comes to providing them with the space yeah. to actually run the kind of research that's going to make a difference in their mm. design. So there is, there's that aspect of what this enables for the, the design team. And the other thing that it enables is it's outside of the building. This is a yeah. place that exists outside of the organization. It's a neutral place. It's a neutral place. Yeah. It doesn't suffer from any of the politics of hmm. who owns the lab inside. You know, right. um, can, I, can I trust that the perspective that I'm getting back from hmm. whoever isn't biased by a particular um, uh, opinion that is held? Um, but it's also more than that. It's a place that is designed to raise the credibility and the esteem of our practice as designers, and particularly right. UX. And we can invite people from across the business to participate in the design process in this beautiful world-class setting. And uh, it's that kind of ability to help change the conversation inside the company mm. that really sits underneath all of the very important research mm. and UX work that we do here with teams. But it's really ultimately I'm trying to change the design culture in New Zealand and give designers uh, another way that they can help to further that cause. Right, yeah. Because what I know is that a lot of companies, they have the, uh, probably have the user testing setup or environment, but some of them was uh, driven by, uh, from marketing perspective, mm -hmm. it's not from UX perspective. And sometimes it's also like uh, what you mentioned, it's not a neutral place. Even, I mean, even the setup is perfect if you go to a company's office as a customer to do the user testing and more or less you've got some some um, like um, inception mm -hmm. from from about uh, about your mind and probably there will be some bias even before the testing mm -hmm. so i think that would be great as uh, as a neutral place yeah 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 and we we can we can hand on heart say to participants when they come in right yeah we didn't have anything to do with the design mm -hmm. of what it is that you're going to see today yeah you know we we can really honestly say that and the other thing that we can say is that we don't have a horse in the race when it comes to the design or the development of this product either so to our clients we are only focused on helping you to see the user's truth mm. yeah. that's it we're not there to try and sell you other services we're completely impartial completely independent yeah and we're giving you the truth of that user mm. do you have any um, story or any case study or any story related to uh, 
the uh, the youth testing here? Is there something that can go public or something you can share? Eventually, there will be. There's nothing that I can speak about at the moment. Oh, right. Being research, yeah. it's quite it's quite difficult to right, yeah. to talk candidly about some of the things that we've been involved with. Yeah. What I can tell you that has been really exciting, and I can talk about publicly, mm. is we've formed a relationship with Tech Futures Lab, right. and mm. we've had uh, several of their short course uh, product management groups through and it's been so great seeing people that come from various different corporate uh, backgrounds whether it's accounting and finance or whether it's people that have worked in marketing Mm -hmm. and bringing them into a space like this and having them with each other evaluate Mm -hmm. the prototypes that they have been creating as part of their work that they've been doing at Tech Futures Lab and uh, it's a a really fun evening and uh, really eye-opening I think everyone that comes in here just immediately gets the value of so usability yeah, testing <laughs> yeah. yeah user testing and it's not really about selling them as such i think it's just you might hear about this stuff and it might live in you know some corner office in the in the in the organization or yeah. it might be perceived to be part of just the design team or maybe just one person's role but i think until you actually come to a place like this and you see it happening mm. um, it's difficult to really grasp just how useful it can be right definitely book another session for this podcast interview like when it uh, when some some case is ready for share and mm-hmm. yeah definitely want to hear some behind scene stories and yeah and what i can imagine like like if if i'm a design manager it will be great to collaborate with this um, uh, facilitation and then show the value to other stakeholders and then uh, can uh, can let them understand what's the value mm-hmm. and how it works mm-hmm. and then uh, even later stage uh, it's not exactly what uh, like what you're doing at here they can still get a better um, process for the, their own companies yeah mm-hmm. so things like that that just came to my mind and yeah it's really really interesting to, to see what, what another thing came to my mind is that um, <clears throat> From the book Lean UX, the, uh, the, the author uh, mentioned uh, like a rapidly or general user interview. Like every week, invite three customers, real customers, go to the office and have a conversation with the team. And probably if the product has new um, features, do some user testing. If not, just talk with them and understand their behavior and collect some data from from that and which will be great to create a better persona but something is really valuable is to uh, by talking with them the whole team can understand the customer better that's right so, yeah 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 so that, that's something I'm thinking like it could be some other types of the uh, of the like of the of the package that you can provide for for different com- uh, customers different yeah. companies yeah. that 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 cadence that you've touched on there, that sort of um, repetition of involving the user in the process, whether yeah. it's just conversation and discovery-based interview or whether it's to assess something that you've produced and try and get their mm-hmm. behavior and their perspective on, on it, that's really important and that is something that 
actually develops like when you go to the gym you know you first start out yeah you can only you know do 10 push-ups but if you keep going back every day you know you soon find that you can do a hundred it's a muscle that gets stronger right. and the only way it gets stronger and the only way that you're going to get better insights and create better products mm. is to be regularly and reliably running these studies and these types of conversations yeah otherwise it's too often too late too little um, in the process and it's too hard to adjust yeah. the design when everyone just wants to celebrate it going live no one wants to hear bad news right at the end <laughs> so doing it on the way through even doing it doing you know doing your explorative research before you've even decided what it is that you're going to build yeah um you need to you need to be doing it and you probably aren't doing as much as as you could do right yeah that's a good point and also like the location is quite good it's in the center of the city so yeah um Chris, we talk a lot things about uh, the space in between. Um, now, it, now, from my understanding, it's a UX lab. But before that, you also work for different clients, like provide a UX solution, design solution for them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we've been doing that for 10 years. And I suppose that's what gives us the capability and the credibility to apply the research methods that we were using as part of part of our own design practice right. and then only focus on applying those parts of what we were doing for our clients now um, that we have been successful practitioners of design in the field that we are now advising on the insights mm-hmm. to inform designers other designers to make better decisions yeah um, it might not be a proper question, but I, I really want to ask is that, do you think it's because the design um, is so easy to be judged by uh, individual level? And also like from your agency experience, you already work in this industry for ten, more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, so why do you think it would be the good uh, strategy to build a research-focused uh, uh, company. Is it because you you feel it's it's a better way to 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 back the design, or like it's a better strategy for the clients or for for your business? Uh, yeah, just uh, I'm not sure if, if I if I describe mm. my question mm. clearly, but I, I yeah. think I think I understand what you're asking. So I, I suppose I looked at what it was that was most enjoyable out of the design process and what was the, also what was conversely, what was the hardest part. Mm. And the hardest part and the most enjoyable part is always the part when you put your work in front of a real life user mm. and you see what happens. And often it's not what you expected and sometimes it's not what you would have liked. Mm. And that experience is a really valuable experience Mm. and I looked at how we were running those experiences and thought about well is that the greatest impact that we can have if we just keep that inside our own design practice or is this something that actually needs to be you know let out of the cage and something that we can help Mm. um, a wider set of designers to do better Mm. to make better decisions and I decided that that really was the, the most interesting, the most valuable thing that we could do. And I looked at what else we were doing and realized that it would be very difficult for us to honestly say that we are going to do the research and insights part of a project 
without any bias mm. if we were also selling if you like for that terrible word selling selling the design implementation whether that's the ux and the ui or whether it's on the other end of it the development that there was a inherent bias in the solution and the, the things that we might recommend or the things that we might leave out even if we are doing our best to step away and be impartial it's almost like having the student mark their own exam there's always the risk that they just they just might not do it 100 percent above board and i didn't want to carry that um bias through to to this next phase of what it is that we're doing so we will never work on on anything um, that we've been involved in or have been asked to be involved in any of the implementation it's yeah. only, only focused on the insights, and that way we can be truly independent. Yeah, yeah, that's a um, really clever strategy, and also like necessary for all the clients and all the potential customers. Yeah, you know, I suppose also generally, if you look at the industry, I mean, how many design agencies are there? I mean, how many? I mean, there are just so so many, and everybody generally says that we can do everything, and I just don't. I know, I know that. I mean, I've made those kind of claims, you know, in the past. We're full service, whatever that means. You know, yeah. it often means nothing in reality. And there are very few companies in this country that can truly say that they are full service. Mm. So you look at the credibility that sits behind a lot of the the messaging that's out there in the marketplace. And the truth is, people are spreading themselves too thin. Mm. And uh, each of these things, and you know, whether it's UI, UX, UX research, development, they're all massive massive specialties in and of themselves um, but for whatever reason in New Zealand we have this tendency to uh, avoid specialization to overly generalize and I think ultimately that um, reflects poorly in a lot of businesses positioning they're just not mm. meaningful you know you it's very difficult unless you've got massive scale right. to command any attention if you're yeah. saying that you do everything right so always specialist rather than generalist that's definitely the, yeah. the direction that we've adopted. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, that, look, that allows us to build deep expertise. Mm. You know, things like that will really be able to stand up and um, make a big difference in a client's business rather than just coming up with some fancy words and, you know, the whole fake it till you make it um, sort of uh, approach that some companies take uh, with their clients' money is just uh, almost criminal. Mm. You know, it's... Um, it's a very dangerous way and a very poor way for the client to experience uh, the result. Yeah. Um, do you think New Zealand is ready for this? Cause, yeah, that's. I, I came to New Zealand around four years, um, and I think it's people here really nice and really are really ready to to get uh, to 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 adapt new things. But from the company's level, is it do uh, is it a mature market that get ready to right, uh, to to hire specialists rather than generally generalist? I think we're right on the cusp. Yeah. But I also I've got a horse in this race as well, so I I, mm. I almost have to believe that we're ready. Yeah, people faith. Yeah, yeah, and. and in all business or all significant change in business there is a certain leap of a leap of faith from what I have um, experienced so far in the marketplace since making this this big shift 
I'm very encouraged mm. by the change that I've made. Yeah. And but it's too early. It's too early to say. I, I yeah. can't see the future, but I'm I'm very very encouraged. Yeah. And the other thing, what I'm thinking is that uh, the pandemic, COVID thing, actually accelerated the whole world, especially for New Zealand, to be ready for the competition all, the, all around the world. And before that, maybe it's not a problem. Mm. Like we, as a local market, even everyone's speaking English, yeah, the same as Canada and US, but it's totally different market, mm. and you don't need to compete mm -hmm. with other market. Uh, in the individual level, it's the same. In the company's level, it's the same. But now it's different, because now people get used to collaborate or like uh, work remotely uh, with that internationally is uh, it's not an issue yeah and also uh, the competition could be from other major market major uh, uh, like the other part of the world mm. and uh, we don't need to talk about different languages market but just on English speaking market is still quite different and uh, if we are ready uh, so for that perspective, like uh, be a specialist or be be focused on your uh, like the specific area that you're really good at, would be a better strategy. Like I can do all the things and I can be ready for all the like a full stack mm -hmm. <laughs> or yeah full service like what you mentioned. Probably that would be a better strategy. That focus on one thing rather than other than. Have you heard of the saying number eight why? Is it the wild, uh, like a the fencing wire? Yeah. Yeah. So it's used yeah, as, it. as an analogy for New Zealand's yeah. historical approach to innovation. Oh, so you know, everything we, is just to make we it. We can fun. make it up with a bit, bit of number eight wire. Yeah. And it's a really harmful myth. It's mm. it's really done us a disservice in the last twenty to thirty years to carry that mm. myth with us. Because ultimately what it's meant is that we've underinvested in the facilities, the capabilities and the people mm. to really help us keep up with the pace of competition globally. Yeah. We're quite an insular nation and we're an island nation and so by our geography sometimes our perspective is too, um, is too close to home mm -hmm. and needs to be further abroad. And, and really for the next hundred years we need to start looking more openly at how business is done internationally and actively starting perhaps like China has done in the last 20 to 30 years taking um, what is valuable the learnings that we can see from overseas mm. and really applying them back to our, our own context yeah. uh, with purpose so that we can actually better defend and, and grow our own prosperity because change is coming mm. change is already here yeah. You know, what happens when Amazon decides to open up in New Zealand? You know, what is the game plan? Mm. You know, IKEA is on its way. I mean, I know I'm talking retail here, but there are other examples. Yeah. The internet has removed a lot of the geographical boundaries that used to protect certain industries. Mm. And I think any industry there are no industries that I can think of off the top of my head that should be feeling really smug and comfortable about what the next 20, 30, 40 years brings. Hmm. So it's important that we start building our capabilities and our capacities to respond more effectively to innovation hmm. and to, to actually start investing. Yeah. 
seriously investing in ourselves and not trying to do everything on the cheap. Mm. And I feel that we use number eight wire sometimes to justify mm. underinvesting in our people and also in our uh, facilities and capabilities. Mm. Yeah, number eight wire. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, and, and a four. Um, and uh, I want to bring the last two questions down the ground level because there are a lot of <laughs> things on the business and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably uh, going to work as a professional maybe mm. as a designer mm. or uh, other types of professional in their own career so uh, would, would you have some uh, suggestion or advice like for for example like uh, in the junior or in the early stage of uh, of a designer's career uh, if you're going to provide some suggestion or guidance uh, like what would you suggest that uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for junior professionals maybe not just designers professionals uh, and here in, in New Zealand I think mm. we can we can still focus on this mm. and then yeah yeah and sure yeah so I love talking to younger people about their futures mm. in fact they they often start talking to me about their futures and the one thing that I always say to them is stop talking about it start taking massive action you have mm. to yeah. commit to a certain direction you have to stop worrying about whether it's the right direction or the wrong direction because the truth is if you never ever step through that door you'll never know mm-hmm. yeah. and don't try and hold all of your options open because it will leave you not taking any direction that is meaningful mm-hmm. so you, you you need to take action you need to walk through one of these opportunities in front of you and just give it everything mm-hmm. focus yeah that's a great suggestion and if you don't enjoy it that's fine you will have learned something mm-hmm. from it you will have worked hard and there's another door that you'll be able to walk through, but just get started mm. and take lots of action. Right. And don't live in the nine to five mentality. I'm not saying you have to be a slave to your boss or anything like that. Mm. That's a horrible way to spend your life. But if you truly love what you do, the standard work day or work week won't apply. Mm. And no- nothing great happens without massive amounts of action and that doesn't happen within 40 hours. Mm. Right. Actually, that's related to my next question, but yeah, it's great to hear that I prefer them to not only work, not, like not, not only focus the energy on 9 to 5, but also invest some time on uh, an effort on the things they love to do. Um, because what I'm, I suppose what I'm saying there is that you are investing in yourself. Right, yeah. So while you might work for someone else and there's nothing wrong with that, most people in the world, 99% of people in the world work for someone else. You are always working for yourself. So that time that you invest in yourself after work and whatever it is that you enjoy or that you're interested in, you are, you are investing in your future. And it's important to see it with the long-term perspective mm. and not just the, what am I getting out of this today? Yeah. Because that, that is not how prosperous lives are built. It's built with a longer-term view. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, first, you are the, um, like the expert in UX field um, here. 
do you have any、um, career suggestion for someone? Some、uh, a lot of people reach out to me like、uh, they would like to become a UX designer. Sometimes they would like to trans transition from another career path, or just、uh, as the graduate, just、uh, would like to start their own career as a UX designer. And I'm sure that you have some. Suggestion from、uh, from your perspective and,、uh, and also from your understanding of the market of the career.、Mm. Do you have any like go to design school or just join a company or something like、yeah. that? Read books. Well, they call design a practice, and it's called a practice for a very good reason because、yeah. you get better at it the more practice you do. Yeah. So the most important thing, if someone wants to become a UX designer, is to stop wanting to become a UX designer and start doing UX design. Yeah. Because design is something that you do, and you only become it once you do it. And、um, and a good example I can think of is Charles actually, who's working here, who who's finishing up shortly, which is very sad for for me, but going to a great opportunity. Charles, before he became a UX and UI designer, invested a lot of effort in putting up his own work on Dribble、mm. and Behance that he was working on in his own time.、Right. I mean, yes, he invested in his formal education, but he went the extra mile after the nine to five、mm. and applied what he was trying to teach himself to design challenges that weren't commercial projects.、Right. Yeah. So, do it. Do the design work. It's a it's a doing thing. It's a practice.、Yeah. Don't think about it too much. Just start doing it,、yeah. and you will suck initially. And the only way that you get better is to keep on doing it. Yeah, yeah. That actually reminded me、uh, an uh, an article or like a, another podcast that I recently、uh, consumed is that、uh, as a practice, like design. It's the same as other practice that work out or、mm-hmm. do a pottery or anything like that. The first 100 piece pieces of work will be suck. So yeah, so yeah, don't worry about that. The, your your purpose is to, to go to the process and get the first 100 uh, uh, like the the pieces as soon as possible. And if you yeah move to the next stage. Uh, it, this is the first stage. You、That's、definitely、right. need to practice a lot、yeah. and make mistakes. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I look at work that we did even three or four years ago. Some of it, and I think, oh man, we could have done that so much better. But at the time, <laughs>、mm. it probably was great. We thought it was great. It probably was great. But you get better at things, and therefore you see the shortcomings in your previous work. Yeah, but that's. Progress that is telling you that you are getting better. Yeah, I think that's great. And yeah, just keep practice. And doesn't matter like some specific strategy、uh, approaches, books or talking to people. But pra- practice is the general,、uh, like the core of of the,、uh, of design.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, Seth Seth Godin, who some of you may have heard of,、uh, he is a Blogger, marketer, author, speaker—very, very inspirational individual.、Mm. He's just released a book called *The Practice*, which is was essentially all about what we're talking about as creative people.、Mm. As you, you, you need to engage in your practice. Yeah, because especially I found from some even junior 
professionals, they are afraid of make mistakes, and uh, their defense is that I'm a professionalist. Uh, so, um, so uh, when I find my work is not per perfect, um, I prefer not to do it. <laughs> so, so that's kind of like you know, uh, uh, I think it's just an excuse or some kind of the mindset because they haven't go to the whole process mm. and don't have the understanding of that. But yeah, uh, look, I. I've got a, an almost two and a half year old son and watching him try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. Yeah, that's... This is what growing up is. It is a series yeah. of minor, minor failures and quick succession. Yeah. But the other side of that is it's a series of minor successes and quick succession. Right. And at some point along the way, the world tells us that we suck at something or that we can't do it perfectly mm. and we start to care more about what other people think mm. than, than, than what we actually think. Right. And our education system, the way that we assess people and the types of things that we, we I suppose, put in people's children's heads for 15 years or more before they come out of a formal education setting into a job mm tells them and teaches them to be very risk averse because who wants to be wrong and who wants to be made fun of for being wrong you know we're very yeah. binary and black and white in the way that we assess yeah. educational achievement and that does have an impact on how children view the world yeah. and a lot of that mentality that you're observing in people that are junior designers is coming from conditioning that they received in our education system. Mm. So that's probably a bit beyond the scope of the podcast, but it's definitely part of the problem and it's something that we also need to reinvent and redesign. Right. Is how we're educating people. Because yeah, so all, all that stuff just gets in the way of great yeah. design, right? It's just all noise. Right. Yeah. Like if you never try, how how on earth are you ever going to be great at something? Yeah. That's a we can do another session. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brendan. That's a great, a um, lot of insights I've got, and I believe people who's listening can can got a lot. And uh, if they have anything would would like to know more, uh, your website would be the best way. It yeah, would... you can find me at thespaceinbetween.co.nz or on LinkedIn, Brendan Jarvis. That's um, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-J-A-R-V-I-S. And uh, on Twitter at the same, mm. Brendan Jarvis. Right. Cool. Thank you, Brendan. That's really, very great to have you here. Great and to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Bear. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Bye. Mm.